Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. And uh, my name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode 207, 207. We've got something a little bit different in this episode. We do. So this is not your normal hostful episode. It's not. It's our first ever live recording. True. Which we did at the State Library. Yes, which was awesome. Wasn't it? What a cool thing to do. What an awesome, beautiful venue that made me feel very smart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to be able to say that we, like, we spoke at the State Library was pretty cool. Very, very cool. But even better than that was actually meeting people yeah. and answering questions. And I suppose it gives a little bit of an insight into your author talks, which you've been given yes. giving over the last couple of months. I have indeed. Yeah. And it's that's kind of I'm almost at the end of the author talk tour yeah. for the time being. So um, we decided to record one. Yeah, well exactly. Yeah. To prove that they actually have been happening. Yeah, exactly. But no, it was fantastic. So you you kind of interviewed me a little bit at the beginning and then uh, we answered quite a few questions yeah. from people who came to, to the talk. Uh, and that was fun. Yeah. Really it really fun. was. So we went through the yeah the who, what, why, where, how of the book. Yeah. And then the second half is like a normal host for. And we're just, yeah, the, the audience, we're just asking some really cool questions. So hopefully it sounds good. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Um, let us know, actually, if you do have any issues with the sound quality. It's, it's sort of the first time we've done a, a live recording and it's probably not going to sound perfect, but... Um, if there's any glaring issues, please do let us know. Because it's sort of a trial run for next year. Yes. When, we, when we're over in North America where we'll be doing a lot more of them. We will. And I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who chimed in. I posted on Instagram last week about our tour, the book tour next year, asking, you know, for suggestions of places that we should go and visit and do a book talk or a live podcast recording. And I got so many yeah. suggestions and so many incredible recommendations of cities to visit and particular bookstores to get in touch with. So excitingly, the book is coming out in the States and Canada, we think in July next mm. year. And I have just seen the first uh, version of the new cover. And it's all very exciting. It is. It if is you're exciting. in Australia in New Zealand, however, and and haven't seen or read the book or pre-ordered the book, it's still available, obviously, <laughs> as, as books tend to be. Uh, and Booktopia is the best place to, to go and check well, that out. Well, if you just go to moment. slowyourhome.com slash books, yeah. all the links there to various places you can buy it and find well it. But you should be able to find it at your... Local bookshop as well. You're local. Mm. Excellent. Mm. So I think that's it. Let's get into the recording and to the live recording and yeah, have a cracker of a week. Welcome. Can everyone hear me okay up the back? Great. Awesome. My name is Ben McCallery and I am co-host of the Slow Home Podcast. I'm very lucky to be a co-host of Slow Home Podcast. I'm even luckier to be married to the hosts of the Slow Home po Podcast, Brooke McCallery. Um, just to just do a straw poll, first of all. Who listens to the Slow Home Podcast? Just a raise of hands. Okay. Yeah, around 70% of you. Okay, so you guys will know what this is all about. Um, this is going to be divided into to two, to two sections, if you like. The first will be a conversation with and, and an author talk with Brooke. The second will be a hostful. We're going to actually record this for, for an episode. So um, I will say that we'll, as part of a hostful, as most of you know, we're going to open it up to questions. So I'd encourage you all to... If you, if you haven't already come armed with questions, start thinking about some questions that you'd like to, uh, Brooke to answer or myself. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll take it from there. If you don't want to be recorded, just let us know and we'll, we'll cut you out before you, you, um, you provide your question. Um, that's ba basically it. That's how we're going to run it. Yeah. I'm going to introduce you shortly. Okay. But um, <laughs> not, not now. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Brooke and I were actually sitting down in our front living room and it was late at night 
and we were sitting down and we were going through the manuscript, manuscript of slow, so manuscript as being these A4 typed out pages that we'd got from, from a publisher. Because um, the book has actually been sold to America, so America market has picked it up and a publisher's um, going to be uh, yeah, selling it probably about mid next year. Anyway, we were going through the manuscript because we had to change a lot of the S's to Z's or Z's. We also had to take a lot of Trump references out of the book, <laughs> as you can imagine. So um, anyway, we're going through that and it was a, it's a labor, you know, it's a, it's a page turn. We're, we're sitting there with the book, page turning it, making sure, you know, we're checking and triple checking. And I asked Brooke in a delirious state, you know, what do you, what do you want to get out of this book? What do you, what's your aim? What's your purpose? I mean, everything seemed a bit ridiculous at that stage. And, and I don't know whether it was, you know, just the time of night or whatever, but Brooke, you know, she, she came back with, you know, I want, I want people to feel when they read this book. I want them to, to be sad or, or be happy, laugh or cry. I want them to, you know, be emotional as I was writing it. But above all, all else, I want, I want to help people. I really want to help people. And I, and I believe, I strongly believe that this book, Slow, Live Life Simply, certainly does do that. Anyway, without further ado, I'd like to introduce the author of Slow, Live Life Simply, my wife, Brooke McCallery. Welcome, Brooke. Oh, thank you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming. You. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I, I'm just grateful that you're here and that you're interested in, in learning or listening to us talk a little bit more about Slow, the book, and Slow, the idea of you know, simplifying life and I guess putting the, the work into creating a life of slow, whatever that looks like for you. So I think we're going to have a bit of a conversation. Ben's got yeah. some questions to ask me. And uh, yeah, we're, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So I want to first start with why. Earlier this year, we released a book, Destination Simple, in back in January or February. And then, you know, what felt like a couple of months later, <laughs> you've released Slow. So I want you to sort of take us through how, you know, why Slow? Why did you create Slow and how is it, how is it different to Destination Simple? Uh, Destination Simple, I'm not sure if any of you have, have read it, but it's very practical. It's very much um, like a how to adopt certain elements of simplifying to your day-to-day -day life. It's not about decluttering, it's not about baking bread or growing veggies or anything like that. It's about creating the space for the things that are important in your life. And I thought that was an important thing to do because we're all busy, we're all tired, we're all overwhelmed. Uh, and that book was, it was interesting to write actually because it, it lacked personal depth, I guess. Uh, and that's what I wanted to bring to Slow. I had... I have had over the past six years quite an interesting, emotional, challenging journey from being someone who was diagnosed with postnatal depression seven years ago to someone who now has adopted a completely different way of living. And over the past maybe three or four years before I wrote Slow, people would, would ask me, how do I do that? Because I, I can't even get out of my head enough to start making these changes. Or I look at slow living and I feel overwhelmed because it looks like this whole like list of things that I need to do in order to live slow and that just feels like more to do and I get more stressed and more anxious and more uptight about it and that's not slow. Like, okay, so there's, I think there was a disconnect in the conversation happening in the wider landscape of self-help and all that kind of stuff between living your best life and what life looks like now and so many people would read these inspiring blogs or listen to the podcast and think, I want that and then actually feel worse about their lives because it was so far removed from where they currently were. And that was me. That was my story, yeah, five or six years ago. Uh, and I really wanted to put on the page as much honesty about that process as I could. Uh, and that was, that was challenging to do, but I'm glad I did it. What do you think is the biggest lesson you learned through the process of writing slow? Or something that you may have, you know, discovered for the first time about yourself? Mm. Uh, I, I had no idea how interconnected all of these areas of my life were. I didn't realize that by decluttering my handbag, I would slowly start to deal with my anxiety. 
I didn't realize that when I started to meditate, I would actually improve my self-confidence. I didn't realize that all of these things, which seem kind of these disparate little projects of self-improvement, were actually all part of one big thing, one big shift that I was making. And as I kind of started to try and loosen the knot that my life had become seven years ago, you know, this, this tangled up ball of mess, and I started to, you know, slowly... I guess, loosen up some of those joins between the knots and the tangles, I realized that it was actually just one big length of string. Um, and that surprised me that all of these things were interconnected. I thought initially when I started to simplify, I was just going to have less cleaning to do. <laughs> I didn't realize that it would actually help my mental state. So it was really, and it has been and continues to be really interesting to see how one change has this ripple effect mm. to other areas of my life and other areas of your life and the kids' lives and, yeah, you know, everything kind of stretches out beyond that. So something that the media's picked up big time and one of the big sort of main premises of the book is about the process of writing your own eulogy. Mm -hmm. And can you take us through what that looked like for you? As mm. in how, what started it? You know, what was the sort of burning platform for you to then, you know, launch in? Because it's pretty confronting, I've got to say. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I was, so I was 31 when I sat down to write my eulogy and I had given it zero thought before then. I had not thought about my death at all. <laughs> I hadn't thought about my life really either, which is what I found confronting about the eulogy exercise. But we were heading to Canada uh, in 2014 for a trip and I'd said to you that I wanted to start writing again. And we I, that's something I'd been doing, kind of playing around with a blog, and I'd always been a writer as a kid and a teenager, and then I just grew out of it, I guess. And I'd said to you that I wanted to start doing that again. So we were in a bookshop in Banff, uh, in the Rocky Mountains, and I picked up a little, <clears throat> pardon me, a little book, um, this one, actually, 642 Tiny Things to Write About. And I thought, okay, great, that's, you know, maybe that's how I'm going to kickstart my writing habit again. And I bought the book and I, I brought it home to the apartment we were staying in and flicked through it randomly that afternoon to any, any page and opened it up and it said, write your eulogy in three sentences. Like, I did not expect that. <laughs> it would expect, you know, it would, it would ask me to describe a flower or something, you know. Uh, but yeah, write your eulogy in three sentences. And I was challenged and confronted by it, of course. But I sat down and I, and I wrote it. It took me a few practice goes. <laughs> Some of them were terrible and really cheesy. Uh, but eventually I got there. And I think previous to that, I'd been making these changes in life. I'd been decluttering and, you know, that went well. We decluttered for a couple of years in life and our home felt really simple by that stage. And that had had some flow on effects. You know, we'd save money. We're, we were... I guess, happier and a little bit more at peace and content with what we had. But then I'd started to try and make all these other changes like meditation and changing the way that I was eating and exercising more and uh, all these other things that kind of seemed on the periphery of, of simplifying life and none of them were sticking. Mm. So what I realize now is because I didn't, that was because I didn't know why I was trying to make those changes other than the Simple Living bloggers were telling me that I needed to. Like that's, that's not a great motivator or a reason to make changes. I didn't have a personal reason or a why as to why I was making those changes or what I was working towards other than to say, well, I've ticked the minimalism boxes now, you know. And it was when I wrote that eulogy and I read those words that I realised that was my why. That was what I was working towards. Uh, and that, that felt really good mm. for like maybe three minutes. <laughs> Because I had painted this picture of what I wanted people to say at the end of my life, hopefully, you know, 50, 60 years in the future. Of course, I don't know what people are going to say, but this is what I wanted to imagine them saying. And I asked myself, am I living a life right now that if I fast forwarded those 50 or 60 years, people would say that about me? They would say those things about me? And the answer was no. Mm. Nowhere near it. it was a, the, that was a stranger on the page. And that was a stranger that I wanted to work towards becoming, but I wasn't, I wasn't even remotely close. Yeah. And that was actually the motivator, not the eulogy in and of itself, but the realisation that there was such a disconnect between where I was and where I wanted to be. That gave me the, the strength and the convictions to then start to make the difficult decisions and 
um, you know, have the awkward conversations and make the tricky choices and say no with more confidence and say yes with more confidence as well. Let's but, explore that because that's, I think, that's the real doing part, right? So yeah, that's the work. What, yeah, what's changed, do you think, from January 2015, is that right? Yep. Yeah, to now. Like what has been the, what has been the big milestones, do you think? <laughs> and because and you, you, you said it before, is the book allowed us as a family to join the dots. Mm. So we, I don't know, everyone remembers last year we did um, a lot of experiments as part of the, the podcast. Every month we had an experiment, like we'd do yoga and then we'd do meditation and then we'd do journaling, which failed <laughs> massively. Um, so yeah, um, no sugar, I think. And yeah. anyway, there was a whole heap of them. And that, was, that felt like, even though we'd been on this journey for, for quite some time, it felt like we were still testing the waters. You know, what's actually going to work for us you know, individually, but then as a family unit as well. Mm. And that, so I, 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 that's like the testing ground. But it wasn't until January 2015 that, that I don't know, it's, it's almost like the narrative of how things have worked out started to, to develop. So you've had time to think about my question now. <laughs> <laughs> what have been the big, big things, do you think? What, what do you now uh, prioritise that maybe you didn't before January yeah. 2015? Turning up for people, being present. Someone asked me during the week actually what my personal uh, definition of slow was and I realised that it was having the time to turn up for people and it took me a long time to shift towards that and to prioritise that but essentially, and I know it's kind of a cliched response, but being present in what I'm doing, actually being 100% engaged with what's happening in front of me and not living in the future and the past like I used to or not being concerned about the 17 million other possible outcomes of this moment, actually just living in the moment that I'm living and talking to the person I'm talking to and playing with the kids when I'm playing with them, that changes everything Mm. because all the other stuff falls away when you're you're turning up and you can turn up for anything there's no right or wrong what you're turning what you what you choose to turn up for it's just a matter of putting it front and center and actually continuing to be there and show up even when it's hard especially when it's hard and i think that most of the changes that we've made in our life have probably extended from that shift plus i also think that like experimenting and and learning is fun a lot of fun we haven't stopped it but no. yeah yeah. I think the next 12 months will be a huge experiment for us, you know, so we go through periods of like trying heaps of new things and then living with the results of that for a while and it's great and then you're like, okay, well, let's see what happens if we push things this way Drop or that way. Or, a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Chapter four, you talk about mindfulness versus mindlessness, mm. which I think is what you were sort of getting getting at okay. in that last response. What does that actually mean? Because mindfulness, it's such a... Buzzword. I almost said something else then. It's such a buzzword. <laughs> What, what, it is. You know, so what, why, why mindfulness? I used to hear about mindfulness when I, so I'd started by, started, started this journey by simplifying, decluttering, letting go of excess stuff. And then the kind of the next thing that presented itself to me was mindfulness. You know, all the bloggers, all the podcasters, all the articles were, were about mindfulness. And I assumed that I was way too stupid to actually understand what that meant because I would listen to it. I'm like, well, that's just a word. That doesn't mean anything. Mm. What does that actually look like? Mm. And I would beat myself up over the fact that I didn't know what mindfulness was. It was was it meditation? Was it you know? Was it yoga? Was it deep breathing? Was it all these other things? And it wasn't until I realised that what I was the way I was living was mindless that I realised what mindfulness was. So I, I I didn't understand mindfulness. I'd read about it and I'd think, okay, great, I don't know what that is. But what I would look at in my own life was this mindless living. Like I would, I would get up, my alarm would go off and I would hit snooze five or six times and then I would finally roll out of bed after scanning through social media and emails on my phone and then I'd mindlessly kind of trawl through the day, never being present, never turning up completely, always thinking about what else needed to happen because I was so busy and important. Uh, and I'd do that all day and I'd get to the end of the day and never have actually paid attention to anything in my day. And then I would spend two hours, three hours, four hours at the end of the day mindlessly scrolling through TV while mindlessly scrolling through my phone and mindlessly drinking a bottle of wine, you know, and there was no intention in what I was doing. And that's when I realised what mindfulness was because it was the exact opposite of the way I was living. 
And that was that actually made things feel simpler for me mm. because it was just paying attention. And that's where I think mindfulness has been ironically complicated and commoditized and commercialized into this kind of industry of wellness. And it's not a bad thing, but I think it really does make it much more complicated than it needs to be. We really just need to learn to pay attention. And for me, that was as simple and as dorky as paying full attention to what I was doing when I was hanging out the clothes every morning. That became my little mindfulness ritual, tapping into the five senses as I was doing some kind of mundane task, making a cup of tea, washing the dishes, same sort of thing, uh, but just scanning through my senses and paying attention to what I hadn't noticed. You know, we've got a jacaranda tree above our clothesline and it was just a practice to every morning as I was hanging the clothes, look up and see what was happening with the leaves. Mm -hmm. Such a, a simple, minute kind of change shifted everything because it showed me what happened and the relief that I felt in my head and my heart when I was actually just paying attention to the moment. That was pretty intoxicating. And I found myself parenting differently and talking differently and thinking differently. One of the big, I guess, barriers or obstacles to, to mindfulness is um, technology. Mm. And you put up on a Facebook group um, the um, what was it? The guy as a Guardian yes. article about the attention economy. So I think that I'd like to hear your thoughts on on what you think is the biggest barrier to to mindfulness, and whether it it, it gets into this theme of the attention economy mm. and how we're 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 just fighting always. We're competing for for attention almost mm. with with technology. I think the biggest barrier to mindfulness is is busyness because I think we've convinced ourselves that when we're busy we don't have the the time to be mindful which is it's actually not true you can turn anything into a mindfulness moment you know you can turn any any process any any action into a moment of paying attention mm. but I do think that that's the biggest roadblock we throw in our own way to living more mindfully but technology is and this is what was fascinating about that Guardian article. If you get a chance to have a look at only, I think maybe it might be a week old. We're going to do a Monday episode on it. Yeah, actually, up. Yeah, yeah. So not this yeah. Monday, but the Monday yeah. after we're going to go in depth on our thoughts on, on the Guardian article. But essentially it was um, highlighting the fact that a lot of the Silicon Valley developers and engineers of social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram no longer use them because they know that they have been designed to make us addicts to the technology. They are built specifically to induce like a, a dopamine hit every time we get a notification. And that kind of made me really angry. You know, not only are we battling against busyness, not only are we battling against societal expectations of what success looks like in terms of just constantly being on the go and having 15 projects on and all these other things, but we're also battling against this kind of little demon in our pockets that is actually designed to grab our attention mm. and pull it towards our screen for hours a day. Uh, and I think that, that that little bit of anger is quite helpful because um, I actually deleted all of my, face, my all of my social media apps after reading that article. And it's just brought a, uh, a real sense of uh, intention, I guess, to how I'm using technology. I don't have a problem with technology. I have a problem with it being used against me <laughs> but uh you know it's it it's time that we understood how mindless we have become when we use that social media technology other technologies as well but the article was just about social media mm. yeah and i think that by doing that just by being aware of that being an issue is the first step towards shifting our behavior uh, and then taking control of our own time again because the disconnect to connect chapter in the book yeah. Which, which basically is sort of on that attention economy. One of the big things for us were, was the screen-free bedrooms. Yeah, which like, was an experiment that we a, did. Also a Monday experiment. But that, more than anything, I think, changed our, our lives, the way we, we slept, yep. the way, at, at, like a lot of different things. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, I used to read uh, e-books on like the Kindle app on my phone. I used to have an iPad that fell down the stairs, thanks kids, and uh, changed to reading ebooks on my phone. And I just assumed that there was nothing wrong with that. 
that I was reading. It was great for me. And then I would wonder why I would lay in bed until midnight, my brain ticking over, not being able to get to sleep. Turns out the blue light of your, your backlit smartphones and iPads mm. tells your brain that it's morning time and it doesn't allow your brain to actually switch into deep sleep mode, which I thought was fascinating. So that was the basis of our screen-free experiment. And no screens were allowed in the bedroom for 30 days. And within two or three days, my sleep had improved, my mood had improved, our mornings had improved because I didn't roll over and go, well, I'm just going to check the time. <laughs> I'm just going to check what notifications I got. <laughs> okay, I'll check Instagram again in case something happened in the 30 seconds since I was on there last. Yeah. And it, it was this intention that we brought to, to our relationship with technology that was challenging to realise how much we did use it uh, in times when we shouldn't be using it. Well, I don't think that we should be using it. Mm. Mm. The art of the backslide. So mm -hmm. in the book, you talk about how these are all the principles and, you know, you go through what's worked for us, mm -hmm. what's worked for you personally, what's worked for us as a family, but then also right at the end, hit us with, you know, it may not work for any, everyone, but also it's okay to fail. Yeah, well, it's human, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the questions that people ask me all the time, particularly since the book's come out, is, oh, it doesn't seem like you're living very slow at the moment. Like, okay, that's because I'm not at this point in time. <laughs> and that's okay. There's seasons in life. There are moments where regardless of how well we plan, regardless of how strong our rhythm is or how much buffer and white space we've provided ourselves in our calendars or in our homes, there are going to be times when life just goes, well, that's cute. Here, have 15 other things to deal with. Yeah. That's life. I mean, slow or simple living doesn't stop that. In fact, sometimes I think that our attention is so much on the slow or the simple part of it that we forget about the living part of it. Mm. And living's complicated. Life's complicated. You know, I don't, I don't know anyone who has somehow nailed this balance of not having a complicated or occasionally hectic life. Uh, but it's about how you deal with that. So I had a period of burnout about three years ago, where I had thrown myself, quite ironically, very much into doing all the things that slow and simple living required and doing them so intensely that they actually became this huge stress in my life, you know. Uh, and I got sick and I got burnt out and I became anxious again and I started struggling with my sleep and my mental health. Uh, and I realised that the biggest mistake I guess I had made was making all of these things an expectation or a destination or a goal to mm. to reach mm. and then I, I had convinced myself that once I got there once I'd done all the things then then I'd be happy then I'd be content then I'd find this slow utopia didn't happen it just I just got burnt out and then I got the flu and then I got pneumonia and then I was you know I was in bed for a month and that that was a really good lesson for me I think to realize that that the living part of life is actually the stuff mm. that we're, we're trying to protect and to, to embrace and, and immerse ourselves in. So I wrote that final chapter <laughs> at a period in the year where I was quite stressed with the book deadline and all of those kinds of things. And I initially sent my manuscript in to the, the publisher and they wrote back, they're like, yeah, this last chapter is... It's not, it's not good. It's not good at all. It, it just, I was in a really... Yeah, did someone die? Like it was sort of that. Yeah, it was really, it was, really, it was really a really, it, it was, it, it was a, not a negative place. It, I was being honest, yeah. but I was being honest in a way where I hadn't yet fully grasped the way to deal with these busy periods. Mm. Uh, and so I rewrote it once I had taken a break and, you had know, a had a, hol had a holiday. Yeah. Uh, and what I realised was, all you need in those periods of busyness are a handful of non-negotiables and the desire or the capability or the flexibility to drop your standards in those busy periods, mm. which is something I hadn't done. I hadn't allowed myself to drop my standards. I just kept adding things, never actually subtracting things. So I guess my encouragement is for, for people and myself, it's something I'm still learning to do, is to just figure out what those one or two non-negotiables are for you in those busy periods and ensure that they have a, like a central place in your life and then let everything else flow around you as it needs to because that's I mean that to me is what life is it's a matter of having this rock solid kind of base this core and then you have periods where there's 
all the nice stuff flowing in and you've got periods where there's the not so nice stuff or just too much stuff flowing around and it's letting go of those expectations of what it's going to look like allows you to find or has allowed me to find ease and once I found that ease that just I just softened into things mm. ironically that's where I, I actually find slow lives in those times where I soften into whatever life looks like okay yeah okay <laughs> It feels like we're in a pretty busy time at the moment. Yeah. And as a as a self-professed introvert, mm. how are you dealing with um, you know the publicity around your book? How are you dealing with your, the author talks? I mean, been out to everywhere, town, you know, Tamworth and up to Brisbane and Newcastle and State Library, State Library and Cog you know, we've been, you, I mean, you've travelled quite a lot in the last month. How do you balance that with, with your slow living principles? Um, you don't balance it. I, I don't. How do you tilt? Thank there? you. <laughs> <laughs> you embrace the fact that it's not balanced at times. Mm -hmm. And I, but I do go back to those non-negotiables. So for me, I've figured out that if I do some kind of mindfulness practice, so that has been meditation for many months and I've meditated most days throughout this really busy period uh, and that has made a huge impact on my self-confidence mostly because I think had I tried to do this situation two years ago, I would have oh, run away screaming. I, really, like, I genuinely could not have dealt with it. I didn't have the mental space or the strength of mind or the whatever you know the coping mechanisms to to deal with it because i do find it quite challenging wonderful but challenging uh so it's it's meditation but i've also been doing my morning pages which is something that i it's just a rock solid part of my day if i do that if i have some time to meditate everything else is okay and you commented like maybe two or three weeks ago on the fact that i had coped with <laughs> you sounded quite surprised mm. how well i had coped with the the period of life that we've been in, which has been unusual. And I absolutely put it down to, to spending that time yeah. every day, just letting my thoughts do their thing rather than busying myself away from them or numbing myself with busyness or with stress or anxiety so that I didn't have to feel those feelings of discomfort. Um, and also talking about them. You know, I think it's really important to talk about it. People say, well, how are you managing, you know, this? Well, I'm not. Our laundry is like a bombsite at the moment and that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. And also you manage it. We were driving in from the Blue Mountains this afternoon. Brooke's been doing all the talk at Concord and in the city um, in the night, in, during the week at night. And she, she mentioned that um, she usually blasts 90s rock anthems on the way in just to, just to feel nice Well, I think the thing is I sing really loudly, which is basically <laughs> my version of deep breathing. But I wouldn't do that with you in the car. <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't do it at all. Um, I'm conscious of the time, and I want to open it up for questions. But I've got one more question that I've never asked you, ever asked you. So okay. here we go. What does slow mean for you? <laughs> well, like I mentioned before, it's it's having the time mm. to turn up. Mm. It's got nothing to do with baking bread or growing veggies or wearing natural fibres or anything like that. It's all part of it. Like, I, I get it, but for me, that's, it yeah. doesn't look a particular way. It doesn't look like a Kinfolk magazine spread or anything like that. It looks like turning up for okay. what's important and having the time and creating the space. And I think that's the thing that has been lacking in the conversation about it is doing the work to create that space because it, it doesn't just happen. There you go. Guys, um, we've got a mic at the back, so if you've got a question, please, please raise your hand. Otherwise, I'm just going to start answering questions as well. Oh, excellent. Hi, my name is Alexandra. Really lovely to see you finally because I seriously never pictured you going to look like that. Okay. I hope I'm <laughs> above or below expectations at the moment. No, it's not a low, it's just Okay, fair enough, fair enough. This same voice. Okay. In fact, I think it's a cool thing to hide behind some kind of project and reveal that surprise mm -hmm. because sometimes people just show off too much and you lose that surprise. You do. I'm really, really glad to see you finally. So my question is, I haven't seen an article you mentioned about um, the technology and it's really sad to watch even like my husband. I'm kind of losing him occasionally mm. to that phone. And he's a little bit older than me, and he's still, I don't know, he's just this different person. He doesn't see it as a problem, and he just sees it as a little bit of reading 
of an iPhone. Yeah. But I see it's a big problem. And sometimes I just give up and just think whatever, do whatever you want. You know, I just have to start from myself. Mm. And so the question is, because it is a scary thought, the technology is totally. able to take away attention. Mm. And I'm just about to kind of launch my own little business, which is going to involve like photography. And at the same time, every day, I'm battling like introvert and extrovert, which mm -hmm. has always been an extrovert, but since I had a child, I, I think I became an introvert. <laughs> and I'm battling, should I embark on all these social medias to start building my business? But at the same time, I feel so sick of that. And I don't know, like, what is the solution? Mm -hmm. Have you ever came across with strategies how to deal in situations like this in the modern business environment? to abandon all the social media, but how to start working, how to build your audience, or, I don't know, go through pain and do mm -hmm. it. And, like, and, and second quick question, how do you recover as an introvert? You know, like, is it same time required to just recover after the mm. public human mm -hmm. time? Because I found it's interesting. Yeah. Transformation for me, I've always been fine, but now I feel like saying I need to meditate, to breathe, whatever. It's just like crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, so those two questions, do you want to do the introvert one first? Sure. Yeah, and then we'll do the social. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah so I need time to recover. Uh, ben said I usually blast some kind of music that is actually relaxing to me on the way to an event. And then when I come out, I listen to something that loosens me up. Like I usually listen to a, a funny podcast and just laugh myself stupid on the way home. And that to me feels like a like a, you know, a recalibration or a rejuvenation or something. Uh, but I definitely need time to recover. It doesn't just happen. Um, and if I have too many things on in a week, then he'll know because by the weekend, I'm, I just need to stay at home. I just need to not talk to anyone. I can garden, I can be productive, but I just need some headspace. And I think it's just being aware of that and not waiting until I'm overwhelmed or anxious before I do anything with it. Uh, means that I'm usually maintaining that kind of level of okay, I can I can do these things, but then I can go and hide in my introvert pillow blanket fort thing and feel better about myself in a little while. Uh, yeah, so I think it's just important to to Have be on top of it. Have you tried the flotation therapy? Um, no, I haven't. But there's one that's just open near true. nearby. Yeah, and apparently it's fantastic. I've got a friend who swears by it, so I will let you know because they've just opened yeah. in. Yeah, I heard it's like a meditation. Yes. Steroids yeah. Just have no sense. You're blocked, and you're just really like complete sensory deprivation. Yeah, I think it would be that's fascinating. Like, that's it right sounds there. it sounds like something I would really enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but just on that, I always I can always pick up uh, what Brooke's throwing down in terms of just needing that alone time. Um, and so I'd, I'd often, particularly when you were riding, I yeah. think um, yeah, I'd just take the kids out out of the house and we'd go we'd go somewhere because it's just that space. I feel like just you just need. Space. Physically, you just need that space to be alone. Yeah. 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 So that, I think, really helped, hopefully helped. It helps. Yeah. It helped a lot. The social media one's a bit... Yeah, so social media for a business, I think, is a lot different to social media yep. mindlessness. Yeah. Or fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or even just personal social media personal is very different so to business media. social media. Um, so let's talk about the way that we use social media. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've, we've launched an online retreat which starts on Monday based on social media. We've done a lot of social media stuff for it. How did we do that? How did you, how did you manage that? Uh, I'm just really intentional with it. So, I mean, if you, don't, if you want to build a business and you don't want to use social media, then don't do it. Like, I mean, honestly, you don't have to do it. I'm sure that it, it will, there'll be pain points as a result depends of that. Business, so of course, yeah. it depends on the business, but um, there are people who, who do build businesses without an overwhelming social media presence. Um, it just has challenges attached to it. But if you did want to use it, but you just didn't want it to become this mindless, all-consuming thing, which is more the way we use it, um, you just have to be intentional. And we usually limit how much we post. I, I genuinely delete Instagram. Uh, I'll install it in the morning, post, check, whatever, and then I'll delete it. And that just stops me from being just mindlessly checking. Facebook's very similar. And uh, we, we're learning to be more organized. So we'll kind of work a week or two ahead put some posts together, schedule them to go out and then just check in kind of once or twice a day rather than the constant busy work of checking in or, or feeling like we need to be available constantly. And I think it's just letting go of that expectation of being constantly available or, or constantly updating and understand that that's not what you want to do with your time. And people are fine with it. 
people get used to it. Yeah, it's like, again, it makes you feel like some people do it and you don't, that means you're lagging behind. Yeah. Yeah, it I mean, it depends what you're trying to get out of your business. So if you're, you're, you're wanting to reach a customer base, obviously you need, you need some social media if that's the, the product or offering you, you know, you're, you're selling. But what I always find with social media is I always schedule my social media not at the beginning of the day, not at the end of the day, because then you get those time sucks where you might, you know, you'd be drinking your coffee and all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock and you've wasted like two hours on social media. Or at the end of the day when your mind's not, not operating as well as it should be and you're just sort of there scrolling. I always do social media when I've got a hard meeting or a hard, you know, a time that I need to be somewhere. I might have a teleconference, I might have a Skype interview or something just before I'll do my social media. So schedule it for half an hour, two to 2.30, because then at 2.30, I hop on a call with a client. So you're actually only allowed half an hour, can't get any mm. more than that. So you just smash it out for half an hour and know full well when that phone yeah, rings, you've got to do it. Like a whole month of yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's it's ideal, like but, but obviously yeah. with social media, you need, that, you need that interaction all the time. So you need to be available sort of every day and so that's when we but it doesn't do need it. to be all day every day is no, the whole, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't yeah, yeah. it can yeah. be 15 minutes a day yeah. and you can connect with people that way yeah yeah so i think just being intentional figuring out what your schedule is like what you actually want from it uh, and what you think needs to happen for the kind of business that you're creating and then yeah being organized giving yourself deadlines and getting the the uh, the apps off your phone and installing a blocker on your browser yeah, even tree, said, yeah. Tree. yeah 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 I, I love one. my little forest app I grow my little forest every day and if I pick my phone up within before the tree has grown it dies so it's um that's a good little app actually for motivation yeah um, I'm yeah. a sucker for YouTube so I've got like an app like a, a blocker of YouTube between certain hours that I just can't I can't watch anything or, it's good it, yeah, it actually it's does so work good. and you only need it for a few days before you start to realize how often you dip yeah. into but go and delete your husband's app on his phone <laughs> and see if he notices. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. You just look and you think, I'm losing him. Yeah. It, it yeah. is sad. Well, it is really sad. Do, it, do, a, do experiment. a family experiment for a month. Just manage, you know, obviously manage the expectation. We just say, let's all try it, try it together. I do find that experiments are a really fun way of getting people involved with an idea that you're maybe already on board with and they're hesitant to get on board with it. You say, okay, well, Let's just do an experiment for a month and see what happens. That's what we did with the screen-free bedroom. Neither of us thought that it would have a big impact. No. That's what we did with yoga and sugar-free and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, it takes the pressure away. It takes the, like, the nag factor away as well. It's not on you to be the person who's constantly saying, can you get off your phone? You just need to find the right leverage. I actually found leverage. He's from the farmer family, but he stopped eating meat. Right. So I did that. Right. That's a big thing. Actually, That's my huge. girlfriend was like, how did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Challenge. Challenge him. I, I love challenges. Yeah. Try a challenge or an experiment. I think that'd be fun. Mm. First one to crack has to, I don't know, do something. Mm. Any yeah. other questions? Hi, guys. Hi. Oh. I'm Michael. Um, I'll try and articulate it as well as possible. But I guess my question is around your why. Know, if, if I've implemented these strategies, you know, mindfulness, you know, um, applying intentionality and consciousness throughout my day, and doing other certain practices like morning pages and things like that, and I'm still yet, I guess, not clear on my why. Mm. I guess what what could be some strategies uh, to, to help with that? Um, have you tried writing your eulogy? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you though and I've tried writing my eulogy and I still I can't articulate my why but I know some of the some of the really important things in my life and that's what I'm trying to focus on at the moment moment so uh, beginning of last year I did nothing in my community I was like absent but I really wanted to try and focus on getting a community of like-minded people together that you know we're working with some use in the area that has some issues so that's what I really like just threw myself out I was like no nah, I'm going to do this I don't know what it looks like I don't know whether I want a career in it or anything I just want to be in the game and just position myself in that space and so yeah I I, I didn't write my eulogy I, I want to one day and I will but I've just got these oh, I don't know how to explain it but just these key themes that I want to focus on for now whether they form part of my eulogy I'm not sure but 
just to look at, um, and it's great that you, you're sort of on that journey mm. and you're already starting to think about it. So when you're thinking about it, just jot it down in your morning pages. Just smash out some of those. What are some of those reoccurring themes? And maybe pull them across and say, right, well, what do I want to, what do I want to focus on? Because for me, it's like actions more than words at the moment mm-hmm. are really important. Carolyn Tate's book, The Purpose Project, might be worth reading if you haven't ha- haven't checked that out yet. Uh, she takes you through this. Uh, there's 50 questions that are designed to help you identify. She calls it purpose, but it can be your why. It can be whatever you, your yeah. values, whatever you want to call it. Just it doesn't really matter what the what the label is we give it but it helps you to articulate what they are and it makes it less kind of headstone you know here's like here's what I want it to look like at the end and more about what do you value and what your strengths and where do you find meaning and satisfaction in your life and she makes the distinction between work purpose and life purpose as well and that's I really quite like her approach there because she then encourages you to have a purpose project just a small one in work and a purpose project in life mm. and it, it takes the, the heaviness out of it because I know a lot of people go oh, I'm not writing my eulogy that's terrifying uh, and also what would I want it to say and uh, yeah so along those lines I think that Carolyn's approach might be good I also like to just think um, just think ask yourself questions you know what maybe do I want to leave behind don't make it a eulogy thing don't make it any kind of big formal process but mm. what do I want to be remembered for and it can be a really small thing you know or like or a massive thing but start just with questions and free writing and and I think the recur- the idea of recurring themes and tapping into what those recurring themes are might be a good place to start as well mm. that's all right hi I'm Lauren hi just wondering how you think that parents who are living a slow lifestyle uh, do things differently from parents who are living fast mm. and the benefits that they would have or not on their children it's a good question and I guess for us people often ask how our kids dealt with the change from living this fast-paced hectic kind of life to a slower life and they were really little when we started like our son was only a baby our daughter was a toddler so they they didn't know any different Mm. but what I will say is that I see we we have a pretty slow-paced pressure-free kind of home environment it's not crammed with activities or anything like that they do a couple and I still see the impact that pressure has on them. And it breaks my heart to see that. Uh, and I think that what they benefit from by having a slower pace or a more intentional pace um, home life is the space to explore their thoughts and their imaginations and to be bored. Like I, I, never, I never feel bad if my kids say I'm bored. I'm like, great, go outside. Five minutes later, they've built something and, you know, they're, they're, they're using their brains and their bodies and, and exploring. And I think that that time is something that we as adults in modern society don't have. We don't give ourselves time to just be and sit and think and stop with all of the constant input into our brains. And I think that that's what kids benefit from, um, from our experience anyway, in terms of just wandering around staring at things or figuring out how things work or what will happen if, you know. And I think that those, it's a skill, I think, to learn how to be bored and learn how to entertain yourself and allow your thoughts to do their thing. Um, But that then invites critical thinking, which I think is lacking significantly in modern society. We're just so busy cramming information in that we're not necessarily even thinking critically about any of it. And I think that if we can raise a generation of kids who are brought up from a young age, enabled and empowered to think critically and question things and get bored with things and take stuff apart and figure out how things work, I think that is going to hold them in really good stead as they, as they grow up. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? I'm just trying to think. So the, the question was around what um, fast friends and slow friends. So what... Yeah, how to, how to... Who is fast and who is slow? For example, from your perspective, how do you see what the fast doing? Well, the only thing that I can say there is that some, some, of our, well, some of our family members or friends, when they come around to our house, uh, you know, their comment is, oh, everything's just so relaxed here. Mm. You know, there's not... Why is it, and I think it's got to do with the physical space of, like, having clutter around and jam, you know, jam-packed full of stuff and the kids have got toys everywhere and there's stuff happening... 
that I think it's combined with that and the fact that the the environment that we've got at home is is relaxed. We've created these spaces where people can, you know, spend a lot of time rather than you know. People when they come to our house, they hang out for. Yeah, a they long don't want to leave. We have to kick them out. <laughs> bizarre i think that's the big difference like that that's to me is the big notice i just notice that a lot yeah the tendency to just like sit and do, stay how and how do you feel if you go to fast home how do you feel straight away what what's the difference oh, to your slow at home faster <laughs> i mean i don't i don't feel put out by it or anything people live how they live yeah the physical there's no physical reaction. We don't have a physical reaction to it, if that's what you mean. I don't... I, I don't. You don't sweat or start jittering or anything? <laughs> you do. I have to pick you up from the floor, you know. No. Um, yeah, I don't think... Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't... We don't... There's no judgment. We, we can't... We don't see that. I mean, we might comment and, and what happens mostly is people say, oh, sorry about the clutter or whatever. Yeah, people, <laughs> people feel like they need to yeah. apologise for, for how their homes yeah. are. I'm like, I didn't even notice. It's, like, yeah. it's the way it's your home. I don't, yeah. I don't mind. Um, so I find that interesting. I think people do get a little self, self-aware, self-conscious yeah. when they know that we do this podcast and we talk about slow living mm. and simplifying and stuff. People feel like they need to apologize or explain themselves i'm like dude you don't need to explain yourself at all it's just it's just life we do life the biggest issue that we've got with kids as well is um around toys and we've got grandparents that that love giving them toys in fact our kids are at my my mum and dad's now and i just know (laughs) that when we get back there and and mum will have this big like She'll go on for five minutes about why she gave, you know, and it happens all the time. And we're, we're, I'm, going, I'm getting really anxious about going back and, and having to get cranky at my mum. But it's almost like these stages of grief that, that people go through that aren't, don't live the slow lifestyle. And I think it's anything countercultural. It's like they start to question, like, why would you want to do that? Why do you want to live like that? They always get angry. And then they start saying stuff like, Oh well, it's okay if I do it. You know, I'll, I'll I'll do it. I'll you know buy the kids toys or whatever. And then at the end, and we've had some of our friends and family. They accept. Then they get to that acceptance stage where they're like, Oh, I get it. I get it now. I can see the benefits of it. So that's what I feel like. It's almost like this transition that people go through that are wanting to. You know, you get the people that are just go blinkers the whole time, but the people that are sort of opened and. And, and want to know more about it, they go through these stages. Hmm. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Beck. Um, I'm about to have my third child, and um, I was just wondering if you had any tips for um, slow living with a newborn mm-hmm. and two others under five. I'm not <laughs> saying I'm on top of life at the moment, yeah. but at the moment I'm feeling overwhelmed with all I can see ahead is hectic exhaustion. Mm. So I'm just yeah, here's practical tips. Um, drink lots of tea. <laughs> but take, honestly, take time every day to, um, actually, that's such ridiculous advice. <laughs> I remember when I was, I had two, two babies and people were like, just take time. Like, stop telling me to take time. I need to do the laundry. Um, but uh, give yourself permission to not be across everything. Like that's okay. It's it's a stage of life, and it's okay. And it's like it's great. That's crazy town. Like and it's it's fun and wonderful, um, but intense, you know. And that's that is okay. And there is joy to be had in those moments if you give yourself permission to pay attention to it, you know. And sometimes that will look like ignoring the laundry for another day, uh, so that you can hang out in the garden with the kids, or. Uh, you know, choosing to go for a walk and have a picnic lunch rather than going to some structured activity. Mm. And I think giving yourself permission to say no and to prioritise your enjoyment of that period, as nuts as it might feel sometimes, is really important. Because it's not going to be a slow time and when you're not sleeping well and, you know, the kids will probably adjust to having another baby in the house and all that kind of stuff. What they need and what you need is love and attention and turning up and prioritising that over feeling like you need to have everything together. That was my big, big challenge when our kids were little, particularly when our second was born. Um, I wanted to be the person, someone would come over and they're like, how are you, how are you managing? This is amazing. How are you, you've got two babies and everything's clean. And I'd, I'd get some kind of perverse kick out of that. And the reality was that I wasn't enjoying any of it, you know? So 
if I had my time again, I would let go of mopping the floor uh, and actually enjoy having the kids with me at that that stage. Uh, yeah, and it's just a softening and a finding an, an ease in that period and sleeping when you can. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, sorry, if I could just say one quick thing. The one thing that I think helped Brooke a lot, I mean, you were when you had both Isla and Toby, you were one, firstly undiagnosed, but the second time diagnosed with postnatal mm. depression. So the whole time was very, very full on for, for us. And I'd work in the, in the city and I'd commute. And I just knew that Brooke needed some some time in the mornings. I always felt like that was when you, even though you were so sleep deprived and like operating on you know a couple of hours sleep, that's when I felt like you were at your happiest was when in those mornings, even with the bub, I remember you just, the, the little bit of connection that you did have, that's when it happened. So I always knew that that was special. And so I had, I tried to protect that. So maybe it's maybe managing other people in the family to to acknowledge that as well maybe if that mm. if that works for you yeah the other thing though that you did um was like we both had something that the other resented and was jealous of envious of no we did like so i would look at you getting oh, on the train in the morning and kind of getting on a train for an hour and no one's touching you or talking to you and i'm like <laughs> that sounds like paradise yeah. and all you wanted to do was stay at home with the kids because yeah. you would leave before they'd get up and you'd be yeah. home when they were going to bed yeah and so oh, that's right we had like massive arguments oh, about that yeah. yeah and it was because we both had something that the other yeah. desperately wanted more of and life wasn't working for us so what we ended up doing was making Saturday the day That's that right. you yeah. took the kids as yeah. much as you could yeah. and even if I was at home cleaning it I didn't mind because I just got that headspace that I needed and you got that time that quality one-on-one or one-on-two time with the kids mm. and that was a big moment of change for us yeah. to acknowledge that both of us were, were lacking something really important and actually making a change to to put it front and center in things so yeah, it didn't look a particular, like I wasn't going off getting facials and massages every week or anything like that. I was cleaning toilets, but I got something that I needed, you know. Yeah. But good luck and congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> I'm conscious of the time. Do we have, maybe we could have one more question? And we can take questions after, but I'll... I'll uh... We'll take it slow, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Uh, mine's a bit similar to the last two questions. Um, it's one I've got two small children, and I struggle with saying no to all the extra activities. Yes. Um, I feel like I'm depriving them of learning and sharing, although I know they'll benefit from what you said there yep. in the house and enjoying time. So how do you get over that? You know, mm. The kids really feel like, oh, why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? Yeah, it's, it's hard. And I think we're in this peak um, opportunity stage with parenting at the moment. You know, that's why our kids are doing a language and, you know, a martial art and, and, and all these other things, because we have a fortunate situation that these things are on offer for us. And, you know, we don't want to be the parents who look back and go, oh, you know, I, I, I deprived my child of learning Mandarin or they could have been a, you know, concert pianist or whatever. Like, chances are. They're probably not going to be. <laughs> and if they are going to be, then they're going to they're be going anyway. To be. You know, and I think it just goes back to we can't give our kids all the opportunities. We can't. Like there will still be things that our kids will look back on and say, "I wish I had have done this." I'm like, well, that's great. You're 30. You can go and do that now. <laughs> you know, my dad, who's 69, just started learning guitar because he'd always wanted to, and he never he never had the opportunity to. He's 69 and now he's learning guitar. You know, so I think. We put this undue pressure on ourselves to give our kids all the opportunities before they turn 10 or 15 or whatever. And that's unfair to, to ourselves. And it's, unf not, it's not unfair to the kids, but it, it, it does create this environment, I guess, of constant doing as well. Um, and I think that maybe giving yourself boundaries on how many activities, and that looks different for everyone. For us, it used to be one activity per kid per week. At the moment, they're doing two. And that works for us in terms of our time and their time and their energy. Uh, but figuring out what that, that number is for you and explaining to the kids why you're saying no. So if you, if you really want to do ballet, that's totally fine. When you finish doing karate this term, let's try ballet. Um, and explaining to them why you're saying no. You know, it might be so that you get to go for a walk one afternoon together or that so you can, you know, spend time cooking dinner together one afternoon or whatever it may be. I do find that by over time explaining 
to your kids why you're saying no to things. Even, they may not be happy about it, but at least they can understand the reasons. You know, when we say no to our kids, which is quite often about buying things or going places and spending money, um, and they'll say, why? So-and-so got to do that. Well, well that's fantastic for so-and-so. We're, we're saying no to that because we're saving for this camping trip or, you know, we're saying yes to this one thing over here, so we have to say no to these three things. And you'll thank me when you're older. You know, <laughs> that's something that you can say when you're a parent sometimes. But I think, yeah, just giving them boundaries and then also letting them within those boundaries, I guess, making some of their own choices as well, I think is important. You know, I'm a pretty big proponent of that idea. You give your kids boundaries and then within which they can sort of make their own choices and learn consequences and understand that choosing one thing means they have to say no to another. Yeah, but also kind of focusing on the benefits of maybe doing a little less for you and your in the family and focusing on what that might look like is often a really nice motivator for saying no. And if you get put upon, like the after school ask, you know, and those, those, oh, mum, can I go to this? Can I do that? Um, you say, let me think about it or I'll get back to you. That was something my, my friend Kelly taught me. She said, let me get back to you. And it just gives everyone, including yourself, permission to acknowledge the answer might actually be no. It gets the kids to acknowledge that the answer might be no. The person asking, the person inviting and you, you're allowed to say no, but just give yourself that space in order to come back and say no. And I find that helps as well. Yeah, let me get back to you to a kid and they go, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, maybe, guys. Thank maybe, you very maybe. much for, for coming out this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thank so you to much. the State Library as well. And if um, any other questions just come up the front, we're happy to Who is that? Hi, podcast.